Acts chapter 14. If you're on a device, we are in the ESV version. If you're clicking on with us for the first time this morning, Acts chapter 14. Hey, this is going to be a a heavy chapter for us. Uh, I, last week was heavy. This week is, is continuing some of the, the heavy themes that we find uh, in Acts. By the way, it's a, it's a hard message to preach to you too and I can't look you in the eye. So this is something that, um, man, I, I can get really animated and I can come off sounding a little too uh, forceful and angry. You know, we can do that every time we preach as, pre- as preachers. Um, but I really want, um, I want us to receive this with uh, the measure of grace that is given to us uh, in God's word. And so I hope you hear it this way. So I'm going to start just by talking a little bit about this thing called the prosperity gospel. Um, some of you guys are familiar with that term. You might think of it as some of those men and women that you see on TV who are um, just kind of promoting this particular version of Christianity um, that just tells us that, man, God's desire for our lives is to accumulate as much creature and worldly comforts uh, as, as we can because that is actually his design for Christians, which is to be successful and to prosper. And we, we tend to, to poke fun at it quite a bit because it's a, it's a message that's so anti the gospel. It's so antithetical to what it is that God's word teaches us about the Christian life. And we, so we tend to make a little fun of it because there's some exaggerations about it and the people that promote it become kind of caricatures, but it's actually an insidious message. And it's a message that says God's aim for your life, like I said a second ago, is comfort and success and money in the bank and boats on the lake and cars in the garage and zero hardships. And if you have enough faith, both in God and in yourself, uh, the prosperity gospel teaches us that you will achieve the life that you always dreamed of. Now, it's a message, unfortunately, that has no category for suffering, which by the way, sounds great as long as you never read the Bible, right? Um, So what happens then is that when trouble comes, we don't know what to think about God anymore. And the questions that rise up when trouble comes are, well, man, is he, is he punishing me for my lack of faith right now? Or is he just abandoning me? I mean, does he really expect us to suffer through a pandemic? Can this be something that God actually ordained? Now, of course, for us as the church, the better question to ask always is, am I seeing the Christian life through the lens of Christ? Because Jesus said very plainly, he said, hey, look, in this world, you should expect to have trouble. In other words, like that's the expectation that you have. That's the cost of following Jesus. And by the way, Jesus was born in this world with that expectation, with the expectation that he would have trouble, uh, that he would be abandoned, betrayed, that he would be slandered against, that he would be convicted of crimes he didn't commit and then murdered unjustly as the only truly innocent man in human history. That was the best life now for Jesus. But Jesus' best life now, man, it, it doesn't work for us. It's not a great life to pitch to the American public. It's a horribly unpleasant and unpopular topic for a women's Bible study, right? It doesn't really vibe well with our vacation Bible study tools, right? It's not, it doesn't preach real well on a Sunday morning worship service. So without realizing it, many of us have bought into an uncharacteristic brand of Christianity, 
And it's one that says the American dream is a biblical doctrine. When in fact, the American dream is nowhere to be found in scripture. And what this mindset produces is just generations of Christians who are unprepared to face the trouble that God ordains for us. This is a problem, right? And what happens is number one, we only see God as useful when our lives are prospering, right? Man, I like the big guy upstairs when everything is flowing down here. Number two, when we face hard times, anger and anxiety become our go-tos. And then thirdly, we only resemble Christ when nothing is coming against us. And so we're people that don't understand the Christian life, don't understand what it means to endure, don't understand what it means to be resilient. Because what we're missing in all this is that being conformed into the image of Christ is a sanctification process. It's a process that comes through tribulation. The Bible tells us over and over and over again so that we are becoming who God actually redeemed us to be in Christ. Now, here's an example. I recently started running again. And the reason why, in case you think I'm bragging, uh, is because I was getting out of breath tying my shoes, right? Which is super embarrassing to confess, by the way. Um, and it puts me securely in an old man status, obviously. Um, now, I didn't have any delusions when I started running again, right? The first couple of weeks, man, it was brutal. So my back is aching, my chest is wheezing. I hate even saying all this to you, but it's true, right? Man, there was no runner's high, it was all runner's low, right? That's all it was. But then just last week, after almost like three months of this self-inflicted torture, um, I had one of those magic mornings. I had one of those magic runs where, man, for some reason I had all this energy. It was like I had run before, right? Um, I didn't get tired. And for just like a split second, I felt like running wasn't the worst exercise routine of all time, even though it is, right? I felt that way for just a split second. Now, the point here is that, man, I didn't get there in a day. And I had no expectation that there'd be no pain or that I'd be running the Boston Marathon after my first week or the third month. Okay, ever, you know? Um, and yet we tend to carry that expectation into our Christian life. But the Apostle Paul tells us, he tells us what's really up with the Christian life. In, in Acts 14, let's go to verse 21, um, which is kind of the backdrop of our message. And this is what he says. He says, when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Because as we'll see in a minute, they've been through a run, right? And he said, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what we're gonna learn this morning is that being conformed into the image of Christ is a refining process that comes through tribulation. Here's what we're gonna unpack this morning. We're gonna unpack basically this question, what should the church expect when following Jesus? And Acts 14 gives us some clues. So we're gonna, we're gonna unpack what the church should expect and then we're gonna answer three questions it raises, us, raises for us in the end to reflect on. So the first part is what should the church expect? Let's pick up in 14 verse one. This is what it says. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way 
that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to their surrounding country. I just butchered that word, I get that. Um, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So let's stop right there because what this tells us, verses one through seven, is the first thing the church should expect is hostility and division. There were those who believed and those who were being poisoned by those who didn't believe. And what this did was it created an environment of hostility and an environment of division for Paul and Barnabas to work in, which by the way, is the same environment Jesus worked in during his ministry, when he faced crowds of those who believed and then crowds of those who tried to stone him because of his claims to be God. Now, what I wanna do is key in here on verse three, which mentions this. It says, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And what we draw from that is simply this, that resistance has a way of developing resilience in the life of Christians. So Paul and Barnabas had, man, they had counted the cost and they weren't surprised at what was going on. They'd counted the cost of following Jesus. And because of this, we see this unusual strength in that they refused to let any challenge compromise the message that they came to preach, right? And again, this, man, this feels very different from the mindset. I think that's been molded in many of us. Sometimes we allow any barrier at all to deplete us of boldness. But what does it say here? It says Paul and Barnabas remained. And don't miss that word because it speaks of resilience. They remained, they pushed through. They were long suffering. They were resilient. Jesus tells us in John 15, 19, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, Jesus says, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So like, like don't think Jesus was ever trying to trick us into what the Christian life was going to look like or what we were going to face when we counted the cost of following him. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be division. And I just wonder the reason why some of us, after years in the church are still so surprised and shaken by a world that is hostile to the gospel, to the message of Jesus. It's these kind of expectations actually that make us hostile to the world instead of moving toward them like the apostle Peter instructs us in 1 Peter 3.15. This is what he said. He said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? He says, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, like man, when you hit that hostility, when that division arises, when you feel all the resilience just sort of, uh, you know, seeping out of your bones, he said, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they might be put to shame because of the manner in which you communicate the gospel. 
And then at the same time, being in an environment of hostility and division, it requires wisdom. It requires wisdom. Paul and Barnabas have to flee the scene when they hear of a plot against them uh, in verse five. The second thing the church should expect besides hostility and division is misunderstanding. This should be an expectation of those of us who are living out our convictions for Christ. Let's pick up in verse eight. It says, now in Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So the church should expect hostility. The church should expect division. The church should also expect misunderstanding. So what Luke is driving at here in, in Acts 14 is that a legend at the time was that the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, what they would do is they would disguise themselves as men. They would come into a particular region and they would end up destroying the homes of those who refused hospitality to them. So the people, after they witnessed Paul's miracle, the residents of Lystra may have thought that, that Paul and Barnabas were gods in disguise. So what Paul and Barnabas was doing was kind of playing into this belief of this legend that had permeated this particular region. So what do they do? They, I mean, they tear their clothes in grief over the thought of being worshiped by these people, which again would have been anti the good news of the message they were bringing them, which was no, stop worshiping false gods, worship the true and living God. Paul says, we're men just like you. So turn from these vain idols and worship the living God. Now remember, this is not a Jewish uh, audience. This is a, a, just a, a people that worship pagan gods and sacrificed to them in order to appease them so that they might have fruitful harvests for example. But Paul corrects their theology. He points to the God that is Lord over all creation, that has shown them a unique, uh, just a unique common grace in their lives. All the things they thought that they were receiving as blessings in their lives from pagan gods, Paul is saying these actually come from the living God and yet they misunderstand. How hard is it when the message of the gospel is misunderstood. How hard is that? When the world doesn't respond well to your words. 
I mean, I know that we can become so easily disheartened and we can let our disappointment turn into things like impatience and bitterness and intolerance because people just aren't getting what we're saying. We can begin to forget our own struggles with idol worship when other people under, misunderstand what we're trying to tell them about their own idol worship. But here's what we remember, and this is what helps us, and this is what sanctifies us, is that we remember that the gospel is going to be misunderstood by those who God has not granted understanding to. And this leads us to empathy and compassion and understanding. So though people might misunderstand us, we understand why they misunderstand us. Ephesians 4.18 tells us that people are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So Paul and Barnabas are simply with a people whose hearts have been hardened because they've not been softened by Christ. And yet what we see in Paul and Barnabas is an urgency for truth, but communicated in a spirit of compassion. I mean, just notice how they respond. Notice they don't fall into the trap of self-pity or anger, even though their message is misunderstood. It's actually on the contrary. We get to see Christ-like care and concern for souls who are lost in a world of false gods and idolatry. I mean, how different from how we respond to those who misunderstand our message sometimes. The better question to ask is, what kind of message are you preaching and how you respond in your response to them? If only we gave that equal weight as we did the actual message that we are preaching in our words and with our life. But notice the, this wise, both wise and, and we would say winsome response communicated in verse 17. Paul says, he, he did good, God did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He points to the common grace God had lavished upon them despite their worship of other gods. And we do well to do the same, to offer a hopeful response when communicating our often misunderstood message of hope and remember our own fight with the false gods we have constructed that attempt to replace Christ. Third expectation, let's pick up in verse 19, is that suffering should be one of the things the church expects. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, these five verses just, they're kind of astonishing. They really just are like, they floor us. We've seen this level of hate and jealousy before, right? Jesus was despised and rejected. He was dragged outside of town and crucified. This is significant suffering and yet, we see how God somehow spares 
Paul's life so that the message of the gospel and the work of ministry that he had planned for Paul would continue to be furthered. And by the way, he doesn't always do that. God doesn't always spare lives. We remember Stephen, who was stoned and not spared for the preaching of the gospel. And then yet we see that even in this, although we're not told who it was, we see how God surrounds his people with his people, right? Um, we see how this group of disciples gathers around him, pulls him back in, uh, and he's back somehow, man, preaching the next day in Derby. I mean, someday there was some kind of supernatural strength that was empowering Paul right now, obviously by the work of the spirit. And a day later, this dude's back preaching the gospel. I mean, what kind of resilience are we talking about here, right? It's not like Paul woke up the next day feeling a little sore, right? I mean, you just imagine, you think of a stoning, right? Imagine the blood stains, imagine the bruising of his bones, imagine his marred physical appearance that he would have had waking up the next day as he, journeyed, it says 35 to 50 miles to the next town, right? And yet he doesn't let either the pain or the fear of further suffering become any kind of hindrance to his mission. I mean, what kind of spirit did Paul have to be able to accomplish this? The same spirit that we do, the same spirit that equips us and strengthens us and encourages our hearts in the truth about what we're saying isn't crazy. And that the message of the gospel is so hope filled and so glory filled that it becomes the mission of one person who was stoned one day to get up and hobble his way 50 miles to the next town to continue the message of hope. What kind of hope are we talking about? What kind of message are we talking about that would empower someone to go through those lengths so that it continued? It's the same spirit, the same hope, the same message that we have. And then to make it even more unbelievable, Paul returns to Lystra to, it says, to, it says strengthen the souls of the disciples, reminding them again that we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. What did Paul mean by that? That we enter the kingdom by many tribulations. I think he sums it up best in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he describes what he went through as light and momentary affliction that is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, he says, beyond all comparison. So here's what this means. Greater than the weight of of the world that opposes the gospel. And that can be weighty. We see how weighty it was for Paul and Barnabas, but greater than the weight of this world that's in opposition to the gospel is the weight of glory that we will experience when we are face to face with Jesus. And we will, when we will know fully as we have been fully known, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. So even though the church should expect hostility it should expect misunderstanding and suffering. It should also be expectant with the infilling and indwelling of the spirit to continue to empower us and encourage us with the hope of the message that we're saying is the message of the world. So do you see how that, how that works in us to be what fuels us and strengthens us? 
And of course, this just leads, this hostility, this misunderstanding, this suffering, ultimately what we see here, as we pick up in verse 24, is it just leads to gospel advancement. Look what it says. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from where they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. They declared all that God had done with them. Isn't it remarkable that you don't get the sense that they are there and they are complaining and they are grumbling and they're saying it was unbelievable the way the people were treating us. Can you believe it? We didn't deserve that kind of treatment. Can you even understand what it is that God is making us go through for this message? It's not that at all. They declared all that God had done. The focus was on the work that God was doing with them, through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, right? So remember, the whole ministry has shifted in the last chapter now where Paul and Barnabas, instead of going to the Jewish people, they have shifted and they've put all their emphasis and all of their mission onto reaching the Gentiles. And then it finishes in verse 28 by saying, and they remained no little time with the disciples and they probably needed that time, again, to just, uh, again, build up their strength to heal from the wounds that had been inflicted on them and God graciously gave them that time. But the expectation every time Paul and Barnabas go out is hostility and division. It's misunderstanding. It's suffering for the sake of what we see here in verse 24 through 28, which is gospel advancement, a message of hope that literally obliterates all the other hopes in the world, which aren't really very hopeful at all. So those four expectations raise three questions that I want to ask as we finish up our time this morning. And the first question is this, have you ever asked why hard times surprise you? Have you ever asked that question? Why am I so shocked when I, when, I, when I hit a wall? Why am I so shocked when things rise up in my life that create barriers for me or cause me to suffer? Because here's what we just read is that Paul and Barnabas were not surprised. There was no outrage over their treatment. In fact, when we go back to Acts 5, Peter and the disciples were beaten by the religious council for preaching the gospel. And this is what it says, if you remember all the way back in Acts 5, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So what we saw in Peter is now what we see in Paul and Barnabas. Every day they did not cease teaching and preaching and the expectation was that they would be confronted with suffering in hard times. What was their reasoning? What was their motivation? Well, this was it. They say later in the chapter, it's that we must obey God rather than men. So obeying God rather than men means being persecuted for pleasing God in such a way that we should expect is going to offend men and women. Why do hard times surprise you? Why do they surprise us? 
Have you ever asked that question? Could it be that our theology is one where God exists only to please us? Have you ever sort of unpacked that a little bit in your heart? Does your theology kind of consist of a God that who exists just to do your bidding? So then when tribulation comes, man, we're surprised. We're surprised because we feel like God has let us down and he isn't living up to our expectations. And all of this is because we believe we don't deserve to suffer somehow. Instead, and this is why Acts 14 is so helpful for us, we need to allow tribulations to correct our theology. We need tribulations to correct our thinking about who we think God is and why he exists and what his purpose is in our lives. How? Well, number one, we want to let it reorder our expectations, right? We need to let Acts 14 reorder our expectations of God. First Peter 4, Peter tells us, he says, don't be surprised at fiery trials like somehow they're strange. He just calls us out on that. He said, why are you surprised? Like somehow, like that wasn't part of the deal. Like that wasn't part of the cost of discipleship and following Jesus. And then in 1 John 3, 13, it says, do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. So we get this message from these apostles that just says, hey, whatever you were thinking, whatever you were thinking following Jesus was about and all of these things now are starting to come down upon you. In other words, when you come to Christ, that's when the real, that's when the real stuff starts happening in your life. And what Peter and John are telling us here is it shouldn't surprise you because you are now in a world of which you don't have alignment with anymore and they're not gonna appreciate your lack of alignment with them. So we need to let tribulations reorder our expectations. And then secondly, we need to let it bring clarity to what God desires for us. Let's turn to Philippians. You wanna make a hard right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter three. And as you're getting there, I'm just gonna pick up in verse seven because this brings clarity to what God's desire is for us through tribulation. And it says, but whatever gain I have, this is Paul writing the Philippians, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him. You see what it says right there? I may share in his sufferings becoming like Jesus in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So God's desire for us is that we might become like him, that we don't go around being surprised by suffering, even though as human beings, we're probably gonna continue to be surprised by it. And there's a reason why we're surprised by it, which we'll get into in one minute. But we need to not let it surprise us in a way that shifts our thinking and our views about who God is in our suffering. So we need our expectations to be reordered and we need 
to have clarity for God's desire for us through suffering. And so maybe today you wanna ask that question. Why do hard times surprise me? What are my expectations? Secondly, here's my second question. How does one even make sense of tribulation? How do we make sense of it? Well, only when we understand and believe that tribulations are the method that tether us more deeply to Jesus. I'm gonna have you turn to Hebrews, make another hard right. Turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm gonna read a passage that helps us make sense of tribulations. I'm gonna pick up in verse three. Consider him who endured from sinners, talking about Jesus, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. You hear the encouragement already coming out in the passage as we consider Christ, as we start to make sense of our tribulations by considering Jesus who suffered. And then it says in verse four, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, hey, remember who you are. The only way for you to make sense of tribulation is to remember who Christ is. And by virtue of that, remember who you are in Christ. That's what he says uh, uh, in the middle of verse five. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for the discipline that you've to, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, he says, for a short time and it seemed best to them. But he, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So we make sense of tribulation by understanding that God is doing something in us because he treats us like one of his own to conform us into the image of Christ, which is another way of saying he is making us holy like himself. And in verse 11, he says, for the moment, all discipline, it seems painful rather than pleasant. So there's an acknowledgement from God's word about the fact that suffering is not something we take lightly because it hurts. It hurts. He says it seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, man, we need to expect in the Christian life that one of the costs of following Jesus is tribulation and not let it surprise us. We must also remember that we make sense of it by knowing that God is doing something in us by treating us like one of his own because his aim for us is that our lives would be yielding fruits of righteousness and that we would be trained in these things to become more like him. And the person that is more like God is experiencing the peace of God, is experiencing the joy of God, is experiencing the love of God. It feels counter. Like some of this stuff just, man, it's like mind blowing. Like I don't understand. Like you're, you're saying this connects to this, but they seem so detached. They don't seem connected at all. If we don't look at Christ, it feels very detached. 
It feels very connected, which is why we understand tribulation through the lens of Jesus Christ. And that's how we make sense of it. And then third, here's the final question. Is it possible to even rejoice in tribulations? So here's what we know. Trials bring groaning. And by the way, not all groaning is bad. Romans chapter one talks about how we groan for that day when all of this suffering and all of these trials will be laid to rest. We long to be delivered from this curse, to experience the redemption of our bodies. By the way, it's a good groan. It's a good groan if you're a Christian because it's an indicator that you're looking for the realized hope you have in Jesus one day to materialize. So our longing for that should grow. And as our longing grows, we rejoice with a peculiar hope because we know that our suffering will find its conclusion and its resolution in Christ. We don't just need a conclusion, right? I I just don't need to know that the pain ends. What happens after the pain ends? We need a resolution and resolution for the Christian is restoration. That's what's gonna happen. So not only are you not gonna feel pain, but we're gonna experience a glorified body that we learn a little bit about after Jesus raises from the dead that allows us to know that, man, the bodies that we have are good. God made them, he declared them good, but they've been tainted by sin and someday they will be resurrected and then restored to their original uh, condition. And by the way, groaning, this groaning that we're talking about, man, it's so much different than grumbling. Groaning is not grumbling. Grumbling comes from a heart of distrust in the provision of God, the provision of God in the midst of tribulations and trials. Because where there is grumbling, you just ain't gonna find any gratefulness. And in fact, grumbling, it's, it's kind of like the tunnel vision of the heart. It can only ever see what's right in front of it, instead of learning, being trained uh, in your walk, in the faith that God has given you to know that even though I can't see it right now, there is a weight of glory that God has prepared and is waiting for me, which by the way, leads us back to wisdom. Now look, how you answer those three questions gives you some information, right? And it's invaluable information about your theology, your missiology, in other words, what it looks like for you to even share this message of hope. It tells you something about your knowledge of God and your knowledge of self. So I encourage you to go back and reflect on those three questions today. Get together with a friend, grab your kid, get your spouse, reflect on those questions. And then just let me close with just these thoughts, which is that Paul and Barnabas, they had no expectation that following Jesus wasn't going to cost them. In America, it doesn't seem like it should ever have to cost, does it? It doesn't seem like it should ever have to cost us anything in America. But here's the question. Is it Christianity if it doesn't cost? Is it Christianity? I think we're being shown what brand of Christianity we prefer when you see our reactions to this pandemic. And I'm talking about the church right now. Some of us refuse to accept. I need you to listen right now. So Cheerios down. I need you to listen to this right now. Some of us refuse to accept this as a tribulation ordained by God for our good and his glory. We don't want to enter the kingdom through tribulation. We want to enter it triumphantly. But this is a toxic 
form of Christianity. It's the prosperity gospel. And if COVID has shown us one thing, it's that we really don't prefer the kind of Christianity that Paul said is paramount for all believers. We really do prefer the Christianity of Joel Osteen at the end of the day. That's the one that my heart is most tied to. That's the one that my heart goes to if I'm being very honest about directionally what I'm drawn to. Why do we think COVID isn't appointed by God for our good? Do you think that? Why do you think that if you think that? I mean, did this whole pandemic somehow slip out of his sovereign hand? Is this the one thing he's just, man, he's just lost control of? Why do we keep seeing this as something to get through rather than something to grow through? And by the way, we are still enjoying privileges in this pandemic that Christians in other countries have never known. That should do something to us. That knowledge should do something to us. And yet what we learn from Acts 14 is that we deserve none of it. We deserve none of it. How many of you thanked the Lord when you woke up this morning because you could click on a YouTube link. You could worship in your PJs. You could eat pancakes without any fear of the police crashing in and arresting you. I have no fear right now as I'm looking into this camera that somehow somebody's gonna storm in and just uh, tell us to cease worshiping. It's, it's not gonna happen today, right? We have become lethargic and entitled people and this pandemic is revealing to us that we are more sold out to a version of the prosperity gospel than any of us could have ever imagined. Paul says, through many tribulations, we come into the kingdom as God is bringing us into the work that he's already established. What do we mean when we say kingdom? We just mean life with Jesus. The message of the gospel that continues to spread with Jesus as our king. Paul says many tribulations is how we come into it. This implies that living life with Jesus as king means we are becoming something as we enter his kingdom. Who are you becoming in this? What is shaping you? Who was Paul becoming when he faced hostility, when he faced misunderstanding, when he was stoned and dragged out of the city? Who was he becoming through all the violence that was coming out against him? Who will you be when COVID-19 ceases to be a threat? Because COVID is only revealing another threat, which is that the American church only knows how to curse tribulation instead of rejoicing in the ways that it's conforming us to Christ. Jesus died so that we might deny ourselves pick up our cross and follow him. And sometimes God gives us very tangible and visible ways to do that. So our expectations need to be reordered because they're in a different universe compared to the expectations Jesus had if we are not expecting to experience what Jesus did as followers of him. Jesus preached to hostile crowds 
The Pharisees accused him of doing miracles in the name of Beelzebub or the devil. He was beaten. He was crucified for the sins of the world, then rose again. So why? So that we might rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer, as Romans 12, 2 tells us. God advanced the gospel through the suffering of Jesus. Al Mohler says, when you endure suffering and tribulation, you have no idea how God will use your story to encourage others. The testimony of God's suffering saints nourishes the faith of all God's people. How will he advance the gospel through COVID-19? I'm telling you right now, if that's not your prayer, make it your prayer today. Because on the day when we gather back together, my prayer is that it might be a day just filled with new believers being baptized, sharing stories of salvation. Pray that God would sanctify our souls in this time of suffering by moving our hearts back to this living hope that we experience the more glorious weight of as we look to Christ who is our comfort in life and in death. So from the sorrows that we experience, we want to call out to God so that we can receive in our suffering the hope of the weight of the glory that one day we are gonna see Jesus face to face and we will be known as he knows us today. Man, grab hold of that hope. Hold it tight. Let it change you. Let it shape you. Let it reorder you. Let it rearrange your soul for your good, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. Let's do that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so sovereign and your steadfast love is so vast that even when we don't understand some of the things we're going through, we can trust your goodness in it. So God, give us a particular resilience today given what we're facing. Let it change us, let it train us, let it reorder these things in our life that don't reflect Jesus. And Lord, let us be a church that is rejoicing in these days, knowing that there is a good weight of glory that awaits us that we can't see, but that we are hoping for because we trust in the goodness of your name. Let that be our hearts today, we pray in Christ's name, amen.